Want to advertise your business in a cost-effective way? It's time to give podcast advertising a try. Research shows a high rate of podcast listeners made a purchase as a result of an ad they heard on a podcast. Visit podbean.com slash brands to launch a cost-effective podcast advertising campaign in minutes. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands. Politics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. Hey guys, thanks for joining us. It's been a hell of a week in uh, American history. It's it's one that a lot of people might not have known that has existed. Uh, the 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 pain, the problems. Uh, it's one that African Americans have lived with for years, for decades. And so that's why we we wanted to do something different. We've never had a podcast with uh, eight people on it before. Hmm. Um, but we think there are a lot of voices that need to be heard. We think that there are stories that need to be shared. And um, that's why we're putting this one together. I'm Jason Whiteley. Jason Wheeler's here with us. And uh, guys, let's start. Uh, we want to start with one of our colleagues uh, that works with uh, Jason and I. It's Damon Fernandez. Uh, Damon, I'll have you introduce yourself briefly here. Tell us where you're from and um, just, just something about you real quick. And then let's move on around. Akila, we'll go to you. Uh, Billy. Um, Carl, go, let's go all the way around um, the table after that. I'm Damon Fernandez. I'm a reporter with WFAA. Akila Renee, and I'm an author. And I'm David James, and I'm here uh, representing the, the educational system. I'm an educational advocate. I'm actually an assistant principal. Carl Sherman Jr., and, and most important of all, I'm a father today, right? So uh, one of the things that inspired us to get everybody together uh, on a Zoom call here and put this podcast together with, with such a large group, again, this is the biggest group I think we've ever had for one of these, is that Demond, uh, who is a colleague of ours, did a piece recently where we just got to hear voices uh, of people in the community uh, following what happened with George Floyd in Minneapolis uh, last Monday, the 25th of May. Uh, and we wanted to bring uh, some of those voices together again just to talk about everything that has transpired since uh, the 25th of May because this has moved at lightning speed. And I want to just put this out there to the panel. We've seen protests before uh, in recent years after uh, the deaths of black men and women in police custody. Uh, This is different. This feels different. Can you give us your thoughts on that? Uh, right now, because this is uh, this just feels like we have we have reached a, a different level now. I think one of the reasons this feels different is the content of the video. Um, I got to admit, I didn't want to watch it at first, and covering these types of uh, officer-involved incidents over and over, um, I must admit, when I found out it wasn't here in Dallas, there I had a certain si- a sense of relief because our immediate community wasn't uh, 
at the center of attention. But at the same time, there was a sense of frustration because it's happened again and it was another person who looked like me. Um, watching that video over and over and hearing George Floyd's screams for help and repeatedly saying, I can't breathe and watching the people in the background urge the officers to stop and do something. It was frustrating. You heard a certain sense of helplessness. And I think that's why it's bubbled up this way because it's not only another incident where you get to see and hear and uh, feel a sense of emotion about what so many people across the country have been talking about for a long time. The video that goes on for minutes is so graphic. And I think you, if anyone doesn't accept the fact or realize that uh, this is real and in your face, you've got to be tone deaf. Akila, what do you think about this? You know, I it took me a long time as well to watch the video. In fact, I, I watched it yesterday for the first time, the whole thing. And it was uh, shocking and sad. You know, I think we're at a point now where things are at a fever pitch where we're tired of seeing these things you know it, at some point you become desensitized to it and that's the unfortunate thing it's like here's another case but seeing this play out where people were urging the cop to get up he cannot breathe you can see that it 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 struck a chord with everyone i believe does everyone here sense that this time there will be change that comes out of this just because of the, the numbers of people that we're seeing mobilized here uh, in light of this? Um, I'll be honest. I, I would never uh, assume or anticipate any type of uh, long-lasting change, even in the midst of all the protests, um, all the individuals rallying together. Because to be be quite honest, I just haven't seen it yet. Um, and to see uh, on any level uh, the continued bigotry, uh, the continuation of people uh, not hearing the cries or uh, not understanding the way that others feel, not even attempting in so many words to understand how people feel. Uh, it, it's very, um, it makes me feel good that so many people have joined the fight. Um, but until there are some some policy changes, um, and, and I use that word policy uh, apart from political, but until there are some policy changes, I, I don't feel comfortable believing that this time it'll be different. Carl, let me let me ask something that Damon said and that Akila said too. They both took a while to actually watch that video. Um, did, did you watch it right away, Carl? I did not. Um, Jason, why not? We've seen this before. Um, we've we've seen, you know, Tamir Rice uh, be gunned down moments after police arrive on the scene. Um, we've seen Walter Scott running away from police and, and shot in the back. Some 50-year-old man um, who was no track star um, gunned down in front of our eyes. We've seen this before. And, and for many of us, it's happened so often in our communities that uh, we're not far removed from anyone who's had a situation similar to this. It may not have ended in their death, but it did end in um, a violent action by a police officer, uh, a chokehold um, that uh, or a prone position that the officer put uh, the person in. I mean, so so I wasn't in a rush to see it. Um, but after everyone, um, their response was so overwhelming. 
that's what in my mind said, this is different, um, you know, stomach it and sit through it and watch it. But there's, there's, I don't think there's anyone that gets any, um, any pleasure or joy out of seeing a human being's life uh, taken from them. Uh, I want to ask a philosophical question, since we're so many days into the protests now that have uh, really just raged across the country in many of the major cities. Uh, I've heard from two different camps on this. I've heard from the camp that says we need to stay focused. We need to uh, remember who we're here for, whose name we're protesting for, uh, and, and we need to keep this peaceful. We need to keep this together. Uh, on the other side of things, uh, I have heard from the camp that says, you know what, sometimes you've got to have civil unrest, you've got to rattle the cage, you've got to possibly burn things down to get someone's attention, uh, and, and you know, standing around and having candlelight vigils is not going to get someone's attention. Where do you all fall in that, and, and, and what do you think about what we've been seeing in some of the cities where these protests have turned violent in some cases? Yeah, Jason, I think we have to acknowledge the fact that we have multiple different players that are showing up at these protests um, from the far left, far right, whatever you want to describe them. Uh, they have different motives for being there, and a part of that is the extremists that do want to damage property, who do uh, want to inflict pain on uh, fellow, you know, fellow citizens. Uh, the reality is that I think that emotions fall on a wide spectrum, obviously, with this. Um, the difference about this, though, that's different from any other protest that I feel we've seen is that for the first time in our country, not only do you have black folks who are hurting, uh, but you have the middle class who has just been eroded over time, just economically since the 70s with wages being stagnant. And you're on the heels of COVID in which you told people they had to stay at home. People are being furloughed. People are being laid off. And when the average American has less than $400 in their bank account, and now I have an excuse to go out in the streets and go under someone else's umbrella to express my frustration, my rage, and I don't have to be at work and I don't have the economic resources, then this is what you get. I mean, we are literally seeing the erosion of our of our country that's eroding right under our feet. I mean, in Oakland, the, the riots there last night in which they're going into a Mercedes dealership and, and destroying it. In Minneapolis, when they're destroying Somalian communities and those businesses, I mean, people are frustrated um, and they're angry and, and you hope that there can be some middle ground. But at the same time, that hope um, of, of having someone listen to this protest for those that are doing it in a civil way and those that are doing it in a stream way works together in concert to get something out of this. Like David said, we've got to have some policy change. And I think for the first time, because of those factors, we may actually see some policy change. My only hope is that it trickles down to the suburbs as well, because that's where most of the, the damage is done. Your larger, your larger urban centers have um, strong policies in place, and in some cases, uh, citizens review boards. Suburban cities don't. Rural cities absolutely do not. And, and so, so that's you know, I think it's I think it's a combination of things, Jason. Akila, let's pick up the same question that Jason just asked you. Where, where, where do you fall on this when you if you're out there, uh, but when you see it on TV, where, where do you fall on this? My heart hurts to see it. You know, when you see the destruction and you see some of the black owned businesses that have been destroyed because of it. But then you have to get it to the root of why it's happening. You know, that that's the after effect of, of people being upset. But 
it I mean, and this is played out in uh, American history, but my heart hurts for our country that we are at this point. And it's been, you know, we, we've been the result, we've been experienced the systematic racism that has been in this country for a long time. And like I said earlier, it's, re- it's re- reaching a fever pitch at this point. Um, but I, I live in Dallas and last night I was at my mom's home in DeSoto and I'm like, guess I should go home. We have a curfew now. Like this is a different reality that we're, we're living in. It's something that I haven't seen in my lifetime. Um, and I guess we have to thank cell phones for the benefit of being able to see this for all of Americans to be able to see what actually happened in Minnesota. And we all had a first eye view of it, but, um, my heart is hurting right now. So for me, it's, it's a very conflicting emotion that I have. Uh, on one hand, I, I, I do get very invested in these, um, working in a school system, seeing police interactions with young people, um, and being afraid that in that school setting, I can't control what an officer does and not being able to control what a student does ultimately. Uh, it's something that gives me conflicting emotion. And so to see these things repeating themselves and, and over and over again, um, I'm very frustrated. And so sometimes I feel like um, these rioters are my spirit animal, right? I feel like they're they're carrying out the things that, that I wish I could do, uh, but I just can't in my role. Um, and then by the same token, I, I don't agree with the violence. Um, but what I do know is it's very frustrating to see, again, non-African-American people telling us what we can and cannot do to protest, um, telling us we can not kneel uh, during the national anthem but then telling us that uh, we can't take to the streets and, and be overcome with emotion. Um, and it's it's just keeping us in that pattern and that cycle of, of bondage. And it's just telling us once again, listen, you can do whatever you wanna do as long as it doesn't infringe upon what I feel like it should be. And that's the entire premise behind the police brutality is do what you wanna do, but as soon as I feel like I need to take control, I can still put you in bondage whenever I want. And so it's very, uh, very maddening and very frustrating for me. Uh, David, since you bring up the, the the fact that you're an educator, can you talk to us just a little bit about the, the age of your students and the mindset right now? Because a lot of times with the youth, with the next generation, uh, you, you see a lot of hope, you see a lot of ambition to change things. Where are your kids right now? Uh, do they seem to have that hope? Do they seem to have that ambition? Or uh, do they feel like this is a, a losing cause? Uh, do, do they feel like, gosh, another? we're seeing another video. Here's another name. It's happening again. Uh, do they feel knocked right. down by it? So uh, thankfully for me, I've, I've had um, a wide array of experiences. So I've worked in, in urban high school. I've also worked in a, a much... Uh, more majority population middle school and will be at the same for a high school next year. So I've seen some different viewpoints. I've seen some completely different interactions with police just based on where I am, uh, which is something that I'm thankful for because it's helped me to temper who I am and to understand both sides of the equation. Um, But if I can just speak um, about schools in general, uh, ironically, one of the the most solid and strongest racial equity policies belongs to Minneapolis public mm-hmm. schools. And so what they have done is really created a model uh, of responsiveness. It's got a very comprehensive needs assessment. Um, and it talks a lot about 
um, making sure that students have the equity that they need. They've gone through and disaggregated some of that data. Um, and at the end of that, I think that's something that needs to be extrapolated in, in all different factions, uh, because ultimately, if we want to pull students in and help them to understand the capacity in which they work, um, they have to be able to understand other people. They have to understand different cultures. They have to be aware. They have to be responsive. And they have to make sure that there is um, parity rather than these huge disparities that we're, we're witnessing right now. Let's uh Let's talk about personal experiences for a moment, because we've seen what happened in Minneapolis uh, when DeMond put together this very powerful story for uh, WFAA in Dallas. Um, he had a soundbite in there from Carl Sherman. Um, and Carl, you talked about what happened to your dad at age seven. I, I know this has probably happened to every one of every one of you guys on the call with us. Um, Carl, will you, will you tell us about that? And let's go back around one more time. I'd like for you guys to share personal experiences of things that have happened to you all over the years, blatant racism that you've experienced. Carl, uh, start us out. Yeah, that, that story. Thank you for that, Jason. Um, that story, it's, it's, um, it's trauma, right? I was seven years old. Um, at the time I'm, I'm the oldest of five at the time there were three of us. Um, so I'm seven. Uh, my younger sister is six. And then my youngest brother was an infant. He had just been born. Uh, and my parents and, and the three of us are going to a shareholders meeting of all places, leaving DeSoto, uh, in a foreign vehicle. And we were pulled over. Um, and, uh, my dad in a suit and ties asked to step out of the vehicle. He, he was told that there had been a number of home invasions and robberies in the community and, and he fit the description. And so, um, my dad got out the vehicle at some point he was held at gunpoint while we sat in the back seat and watched our father while my mom is crying out, um, you know, for, for him to, to be okay. And, um, that was our experience. And, and, and I think it's a point to make that my dad decided to take that and and didn't you go the um didn't go the negative way with it he decided to get involved in the community it started with pta he became our pta president one of only two black pta members at the time at that at our elementary he became the chairman of the rotary club he became the chairman of the chamber of commerce he became all these things and then eventually our mayor which that experience led him to make DeSoto one of the first cities in the country to have body cams on all of its officers. Um, and that's, that's, I think, you know, Jason, that's what we all hope is that our experiences will lead to some type of systemic change, right? He was in position to do those things, but earth behind it was the trauma that we all had, right? Uh, and so growing up, we were taught, you get pulled over, you turn on all your all your dome lights, you turn your vehicle off, you put your hands on the steering wheel, you know, but there's still that anxiety that me as a grown man have, you know, anytime you see those lights. And, and further, anytime I pass someone, a young male specifically, uh, who is in high school, who's driving in any street within our city, and they've pulled, been pulled over. And then you see that second squad car, your heart just drops. Wow. Uh, Akila, can you share something with us, please? Uh, sure. I um, Actually, we I led a conversation about this yesterday on our um, Bible study. We had a Zoom Bible study, and we talked about this, and I brought this up. Um, for myself, I have a license to carry. And just as Carl mentioned, when going through the class, we were told, turn your dome lights on, let all the windows down, rest your hands on the fire, on the um, steering wheel. And I got pulled over uh, in, in DeSoto last summer for uh, my headlight being out. 
and I was terrified because one, I have a license to carry. And all I can think about anytime anybody's in my car and I'm traveling long distance is I have a license to carry. And all I think about is Philando Castile because he had a license to carry and he lost his life. And um, thankfully at that time, the officer put me at ease and he's just like, hey, I'm just stopping, you got a headlight out. Uh, and I told him I had a license to carry and he's like, that's okay. You know, he, he diffused the situation, which was great for me, but I've had some other incidences. Specifically, I lived in Iowa for a while and got pulled over in, um, for speeding. I was rightfully speeding but the officers wanted to search my car. They were like, and I refused. I refused. And not everybody knows the law like that. And they questioned me a couple of times. Are you sure you're refusing? Yes, I am. Because it's a Sunday. And I know you're going to need a warrant. And I know there's no judge going to give you a warrant today. Yes. Hmm. And they let me go. But not everybody knows that. Um, But it could have been a very different situation had I not. Uh, David and, and Damon, I want to ask you the same question too. So Damon, I know you probably have some stories uh, from your roles, but David, uh, add something to this as well, please. Yeah, so um, just listening to, to Carl's story and even thinking about it the other day, um, it, it just, his story is the reason um, when I was in high school that I couldn't go out for past a certain time. It wasn't because my parents thought I was going to be into drugs or um, alcohol or anything. It was just we know the system and we know the way things play out. Um, his story is, is the reason my mom would constantly say, don't speed. Uh, yes, sir. No, sir. She would always teach me these, these different lessons. And as frustrating as they were, you, you can't help but understand it. And so now in this time, when, we, when we've got the video to, to substantiate what my mom and so many others would say to us as, as black boys, uh, it, it, it has a different ring to it. And it's just so frustrating because it, it, it makes me wonder. My boys are four and two years old. Um, and I, I constantly contemplate. I, I love them to death. I love their, their long hair. Uh, but I, I contemplate, you know, what's the right age for them to consider um, having a haircut that looks more like uh, an American standard, which is just the most um, assimilated uh, type of behavior that I, that I could ever have from my kids. And it's just frustrating because I don't feel like I should have to make those decisions for my children. I don't feel like I should have to prep them on what their interactions should look like or what they should say to an individual at any point because they won't be cute forever. They'll start to get the, the stubble and they'll start to fill out. And their dad's 6'3 and 240 pounds, so they're not going to be small kids. Um, but at some point, when will they be a threat rather than this cute kid? And that's a very maddening thing for me to have to think about. Boy, that is personal. Yeah. God. Damon? Yeah. Wow. Uh, Demond, I'd like for you to add to this because you're uh, you're in a different role. You don't talk about these things very often. And uh, I'm sure you've had plenty of experiences to share. It's interesting because my experiences, like the others, have been both covert and overt in the workplace and out in the community. And it's not something that you regularly talk about because in some cases you internalize it and you just move on and figure that, okay, this is just the way the world is. You know, um, one overt case, I was covering a story in Royce City about a student parading around in a Confederate flag that upset some Mm -hmm. students and their parents. And while covering the story, 
some of the students who were leaving campus yelled the N-word out to us. Fortunately, we got it on camera and I talked to the producers about um, we needed to air that. Um, it hurt in the moment, but I think the community needed to see that this is the behavior that is offending some people and hurting some folks. And it just isn't targeted toward the people in that community. It's targeting to us who are covering that community too. So fortunately we have, we have the tools and resources and supportive management sometimes to bring ourselves into the story, even though as reporters, we try to keep it out a little bit, but you know, I know you guys don't know this, Jason and Jason, but um, when my photographer and I, or photographers and I go to certain neighborhoods, um, there's a certain apprehension going in and knowing that uh, I just can't go do door knocks um, without the fear of being labeled suspicious or without the fear of police calling, um, call, being called on me. So I have conversations with my photographers before we get out of the car, hey man, We'll go knock on the doors, but I want you to be with me and make sure you have your camera with me. It's because of past experiences that have told me that um, you want, no matter how degreed you are, no matter how you look, how you dress, uh, no matter how much you're minding your business, some people see you as a threat or suspicious, and you make those conscious choices to try to like minimize how you're perceived by others. And it's outrageous that we have to do that, but it's a life-saving tactic. You know, um, David and Carl talked about uh, having table talk and we call it the talk in our communities. Um, I think Akilah, you probably have had that talk too with your family about um, certain strategies to um, keep yourself safe out in the community. So um, mm -hmm. even at my age right now, Jason and Jason, having internal talks with myself about how we keep safe to avoid being seen as a threat. You know, that whole thing, sticks and stones hurt your bones, but words won't hurt you. That's something we learn as kids, but it's not the reality when we grow up. Words do hurt. Uh, those are all powerful stories, and I think it's important for people to hear these and to, to not just hear them, but to actually listen to them, because uh, that's the only way that you get, I think, a better understanding of what other people are going through. And I'll, I'll just uh, say this. I was on my way to work a couple of years ago, and, you know, we, we deal with police a lot in this profession, and sometimes you argue with them about access, and sometimes that gets heated. And so I'm comfortable in that role of speaking with police. Uh, and I was on my way to work uh, several years ago and I got pulled over and um, I was arguing with the officer and it, you know, was going back and forth and back and forth. And it, you know, I, 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 heated might be a strong word, but it was it was pretty, you know, it was substantial. And I forgot that I was on the phone at the time in my car. I mean, that just totally left my mind. And I was still on the phone and didn't even realize it until after I pulled away. And the person I had been talking to was a producer that I worked with who is an African-American woman. And I'm driving along, you know, still kind of worked up after I've, I've left this scene. And she says, oh, my God. And, I mean, she just threw me because I, I, I didn't realize she was still on the phone. And she goes, oh, my God, are you still a free man? And I said, yeah, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot, I, I forgot you were there. And she goes, <laughs> how are you not in the back wow. of a police car or down on the ground? If I had done that, I would have been shot. And I was like, and it, and it just, it, it totally, it, it made me see in a whole different way because I didn't feel that way when I was interacting with that officer. But through her lens, she was like, I can't even imagine having that kind of an argument with an officer and being able to drive away. 
and without a ticket. So it is. It is important to hear these viewpoints because then you realize that, wow, maybe I've had it differently than I ever realized than what other people have. And that's the emotion we're seeing out on the streets. Some of the emotion play out on the streets because of experiences like that and the um, double standards and the way people are treated. I was just going to say, Jason, um, that story uh, is the story of Sandra Bland. I mean, we, you know, while we don't have video for what happened in the jail, we do have video for what happened at the car. And not only that, but the state and their cover up and the, their data dump that had the video on her phone where he says, I'm going to light you up, was just somehow left out of the case altogether. You know, it's, it's those stories that, that it's real. I mean, it, it happens. It, it, it's our reality. And Sandra Bland is another one of these names uh, on the list, uh, another one of these hashtags uh, that people are out there marching for still today. And we still have a lot of unanswered questions in that case, too. And the Sandra Bland case happened in Texas. And, and, and fortunately, that that trooper was fired, I believe, guys. But um, th- that's that's the question, I think, that a lot of people have asked me. Um, and, and I'm not sure I have the answer, but what needs to be done is the question. And the Fort Worth Star-Telegram did an editorial um, talking about you, you can't address all this together. you got to find one or two things and start there. Um, what would you think the one or two things are? Let's go back around. Um, David, let's start with you. What What is the, the one thing that needs to be done or that should come out of this immediately? I'm, I'm talking about something legislatively, something concrete sure. that can sure. be done so and, and again i'm thankful for these conversations because they shed the light on some of what needs to take place ultimately um as we talk about policies there has to be a reinforcement um in an educational sense and that's you know primary and secondary education all the way up to continued and higher education all the way up to occupational um i think i think the policies that we have in place now um, have created this this compliance. Even when you look at a at a big um, industry like the NFL, they've got the Rooney Rule, so they're going to do their due diligence when they're hiring a coach. They're going to make sure that they look for an African American because that's what they've been asked to do. It's compliance, though. Um, until we move into a situation where our policies and the way that we interact with people and the way that we prepare ourselves is less compliant driven and more humanity driven. I think we're going to continue to see some of the same stuff because compliance just it, it it dissipates very quickly. So it may be we're going to start with this this great foundation, uh, but as the years go on, we just figure out how to check that box and we move on with our lives. And until we can get that taken care of, then we're still going to have the same issues. See, see, David, that that's fascinating because you're you're looking at this from the thirty thousand foot view, and that's that's probably where we need to be right now. Um, I, I was thinking just, again, I don't have the same experiences, shared experiences you guys have. Right. Um, but I was thinking, you know, the, the very core of this is police brutality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know that's that's the core of what we're seeing today, but there are systemic issues um, uh, throughout society in this country that we're dealing with. Akilah, what, what do you think is, is the one or two things that should be done right now? You know, as you mentioned, the the main thing is the police brutality. And I don't know how you change a mindset because it's a mindset that has to change, that we are all human. Um, 
And I don't know how you get around that because this guy had his knee on this guy's neck and felt it was okay. I, I don't know how you change that, but it's a mindset. And, and, and perhaps it's the change in the rules and how you do what you do as, as police officers and how they do their job. I don't know. I, I really, I don't have an answer. And I think that's part of the frustrating part is that we know things need to change, but how do we get there? to be at the first level view or even at the 30,000 foot view, how do we get there? What is the first step? You know, some of the churches in the area have come together um, regardless of the religion, regardless of race. And that's a positive first step in trying to see everyone's viewpoint and understand each other. I think that's a positive step in the right direction. Um, but when it comes to police brutality, you know, just like if, if you think this guy got fired, great. But he could go to another police department and go work. There's, you know, there's no, no ramifications for that if he were to, unless, it, you know, of course, now everybody knows his name. That's a totally different story. But it happens all the time. Police get fired for infractions and then they just go to another department. It's like passing the trash, like the story you guys did a long time ago. It's the same thing. It's an excellent point, and, and it happens. And that that's one thing that, that, that I think has to change. Um, Carl, I want to hear from you on this, too, because you talked about how uh, you, I think you stopped at Mayor, too, talking about your dad. Your, your dad is still working right now, uh, Carl. So you, you might have a different uh, take on this. <laughs> yeah, he, he is. A, he's now our state rep. And um, and a part of that is legislation. We talk about things that need to change legislation that actually um enforces body cams in the local jurisdictions um, that if an officer turns it off turns their body cam off for whatever reason that there is some consequence for that action mm -hmm. um, there are many cases in which the video is just you know it's not there it's not present and officers will say in the heat of the moment i didn't think to switch on my body cam mm -hmm. you know or there was a malfunction or you know making that available not only uh, making sure that they have um, consequences for those actions, but also making sure that the videos themselves, the local police departments are forthcoming and turning over those the, that information, that data uh, when it's requested. Uh, there are many cities that will go through hoops to keep it and protect it. At the end of the day, people look at it as a police department that is withholding that information. The police department is run by the city. Uh, that is your elected officials who are allowing these police departments to hold on to that data and not release it to the public, which only creates more distrust with police that only allows for different narratives to take place. And what we see is many cases, police departments will fix their story, put out their narrative first, and then it's a trial by jury in the public eye because I've criminalized what black skin looks like and what black people do, and I've attributed certain characteristics to them, and now I'm going to withhold the actual data for what happened. It's a recipe for disaster. So um, so that uh, local police departments, once again, led by your cities, your city councils, your elected officials, need to make sure there's a citizen's review uh, board in place mm -hmm. Those are, once again, things that suburban cities don't have, mostly. Um, that's something that rural cities don't have um, that needs to be in place. There has to be some way for citizen input to say, hey, these are the standards and practices that we expect from the police officers who we pay with our taxes. 
you know, that's that's what it boils down to. And I know that's I know that's harsh. Um, and and I have people in the in the police community. Um, I appreciate what the police uh, departments mean and do for their communities. But right is right and wrong is wrong. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, the current system has adversely affected people of color. Um, and, and just one example of that is if anyone were to pull up the tickets written uh, for Prairie View versus Grambling at, at the Cotton Bowl and Texas OU weekend, uh, you will see a disparity in numbers and data for who's cited and what they get for those violations. But it's, it's once again, it's a system that has allowed us to criminalize some uh, while overlooking the actions of others. Good point. Those are some interesting points there. Demond, would you uh, add anything to this as far as concrete things that you uh, see going forward that should change? And and they don't even have to be your own opinions. I know that you speak to so many people in the community when you're covering these stories. What what bubbles to the top here for you? So I go to a lot of community meetings and I've got my ear to the streets. And one of the observations that I made and you hear it over and over and over again is that there seems to be a grave disconnect between city leadership, police and the communities they serve. So take, for instance, the state troopers coming to South Dallas last year when we had Mm -hmm. um, a record number of homicides. And we saw how um, the reality and the impression was that they were aggressively patrolling certain areas that were poor. And um, there's some conflict going on now because I live in District 4, and now District 4 is inviting the state troopers. And so there's conversations going on, but they're not really going on with the community members. Um, Based on my observations and community perspective, um, I think it would definitely benefit the city and the police department if they have some genuine conversations about how they're policing, especially those communities that are most vulnerable, where housing is a concern, poverty is a concern, where policing has been a concern, and um, come up with some strategies based on those perspectives that could be a little bit more fruitful. Um, You know, it's interesting because like, Again, you have the state trooper incident. That's a great example of something recent that happened that demonstrated how uh, the disconnect can get out of hand. Um, I also think that city leadership needs to acknowledge the disparities in our community. And um, when you're looking at housing, when you're looking at the food deserts, when you're looking at the health disparities, uh, look at how you're um, dispersing those resources across the community. Um, There's one thing when you're talking about equality. There's another thing when you're talking about equity. Um, So I think that that needs to be definitely pointed out with city leadership. Um, those are just a few things uh, based on my communication and conversations with uh, residents around town that I think could be some strategies, including what the others have spoken about moving forward. Um, just can't ignore the disparities in our communities and you just can't ignore the voices of those people who are being impacted, um, adversely impacted uh, by some of the policies that are currently in place. There's a lot of uh, uh, big issues in there. Uh, if we can, for just a second, can we go back to the catalyst with all of this, and that is police brutality. Uh, this time seems different in in another sense, and that is that we've been seeing police chiefs uh, across Texas and across the country, for that matter, as well as individual officers, actually coming out and condemning what they're seeing and acknowledging that a change needs to be made. It seems like we haven't seen that with past cases like this. Uh, this feels different. 
But you know, Jason, it can't just be talk. The people need mm-hmm. to see the action as well. Saying a statement on TV or in uh, on social media is one thing, but it has to be put in place so that people can see that, okay, you mean what you say. For instance, uh, Cedar Hill Police Chief uh, posted on social media last night that he was outraging the video, but they're taking it to action. They brought in the NAACP of Tri-Cities. Mm-hmm. They brought in community members to have a training. And part of their training was having the entire police uh, department watch that video over and over and over and discuss training. Um, and I think that that is one effective way um, that shows that you're not just talk, that you're uh, taking into consideration not just the impact or potential impact on the police department, but the feelings of the community members as well. Mm-hmm. And Damon, I I love that example. The thing that I would be looking for with that is where is the policy in Mm -hmm. Cedar Hill to support that in any other city, right? Because city managers come and go, mayors come and go, chiefs of police, they come and go. What policies are actually on the books? Can you can you do the chokehold in your city, in your jurisdiction? And if you're if your officers, if there's no ordinance or policy against the chokehold, then that means that no matter what training I teach my officers to say, hey, this is not what we do. They are within their right to do it if there's no policy saying that they can't. And at the end of the day, they will defend their employee. Cities are not in the business of throwing people out to the wolves. And that's been different this time, Jason, as well. Jason to Jason, that's been different in that you've seen police officers being fired and, and, and you know, quickly. Um, but at the end of the day, they, they're fired, they leave, but when they come back and they sue that municipality, if there's no policy on the books, if there's no proof that they did something wrong, then you've still lost. You, you, you still lost. And when local police departments bring in outside police agencies, I think they have to be in tune to what those policies from those other agencies are as well. Yeah. You know, we have now Um, DPD is getting help from Irving and surrounding police departments. Uh, The National Guard is coming in and we have DPS and state agencies coming in here. And we know that their policies are all different. Video shows that their policies or at least behavior is different. Uh, Just yesterday, some video came out after the curfew showing police officers pulling individuals from a car. One guy, I'm sure he probably has road rash on his legs because of the way they dragged him on the street. Mm -hmm. And uh, the video is being criticized because you see an officer who's not a DPD officer, but putting the knee on the guy's back close to the neck. So when you have that kind of behavior being caught on camera, I think it's imperative that local police, when they're relying on other agencies for assistance, know what those policies are that may be treating, that may force um, some individuals to treat our community members differently. Let me ask you about one one concrete thing that one of our producers, uh, our political producer at, at the TV station uh, is Bernadine Steptoe. She's African-American. Uh, she has a couple of years on me. She's seen a few more things than I have, too. Uh, but she says, you know, Jason, one of the problems is, is that when a cop is caught, if they are charged, they don't go to they either get acquitted or they don't go to prison very long for what they did. And she said that's a huge problem when there's no consequences at all. Right. What do you guys think about that? That's been part of the national discussion right now. Right. Not even if they um, once they're caught is how they're treated at the onset. You know, um, individuals who are suspected of crimes immediately arrested. But uh, if an officer is implicated in a crime, just 
George Floyd. Um, it may take days and their unions protect them. That's part of the conversation I'm also hearing out on the streets too, is that um, folks want some accountability mm -hmm. when it comes to the influence of unions that often um, give a different type of treatment to the ordinary citizen. Akila, what do you think about that? Yeah, it just reminds me of the cop that was uh, charged and convicted in the killing of Jordan Edwards here. It was at a mesquite. And I don't think he got that much time. Maybe, was it 14 years? He didn't get, was I don't think Springs? he got the max. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He didn't get the, the max that everybody was looking for. But unfortunately, we were surprised that he got convicted. Right. Because we've seen this narrative over and over again. You get charged. It gets thrown out. It gets acquitted. But he, he did get convicted. That's that's what we want in this case. We want those officers, if they have if they end up charging the other three, we want to see uh, charges, arrests and convictions and proper convictions. Proper convictions is a word, David. What yeah. Do you think? And so for me, it just. Um, kind of reminds me of, of what's at the forefront. And I know we continue to, to harp on the police brutality, uh, but the reality is the police brutality is merely a symptom. And then what we're doing is we're not treating the disease. So if we talk about the, the corrupt practices in, in other uh, bureaucratic organizations, or if we talk about uh, the way that the criminal justice system is lenient, more lenient towards somebody uh, who, is, who, is, who is white or Caucasian uh, than it is to people of color, all the way down to school systems where majority of them, if you start looking at um, the disciplinary practices of disciplinary alternative mm -hmm. education system uh, and the, the disproportionate number of African-Americans or Hispanic Americans, uh, particularly males, as opposed to uh, a, a white male or a white female, uh, we'll start to see these trends are across the board. And so the question is, what do we really do uh, to, to have the impact that we're trying to have uh, rather than, I mean, a police officer is going to do what a police officer does. If they're a racist or a bigoted police officer, then they are going to have racist and, and bigoted practices. Uh, the same thing for the court system and the school system and so on and so forth. So what are we doing to really mitigate the opportunities for these people to do it? How are we holding people accountable in the school system? How are we holding police officers accountable for those actions? Because only then can we start to realize and actualize uh, what the American dream really represents. You know, you know, one of my biggest fears in all this, Jason, Jason, and um, to the rest of the panel is that the messages that we're talking about and that we're seeing that's driving people to protest may be diluted or lost because of um, what some of the focus has been on after hours, you know, where we see protesters outside trying to expose the pain and bring up some of these critical issues is being overshadowed by those individuals who we don't know if they have genuine um, interest in what the protesters are talking about because they're exploiting the situation through the looting, uh, the, the, the looting, I'm sorry. All the interest is political, but what is actually their political interest and is it gonna distract from what the people who are sincerely and genuinely out there protesting about, um, is, is the message gonna get lost? I just hope that people really put that into perspective because I would definitely hate to see um, on the heels of George Floyd and so many other episodes that have hurt communities, um, that the message, the true message get lost in all of this because of um, what may be distractions, 
Yeah, I, I echo that demand. Um, I have a friend who works at Lou Starrett and she worked there Sunday. And she said the majority of the people that they booked in were not even from Texas. They were from Connecticut, um, Kansas, and Florida. And so while we're out there protesting for, um, for things to change, I hope that that doesn't get lost in those that have their own personal missions here. Uh, I, if anybody doesn't have anything to add, I think this has been a, uh, a great discussion that has touched on a lot of things. Um, and, uh, you know, at some point, maybe we get this panel together again and revisit because I'm curious to see what happens from here. Uh, where does this energy go? Uh, how do you channel this and, and, and start to create that legitimate change that goes beyond sound bites uh, and, 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 you know, the visuals that we're seeing each night on the news? How do you channel this? Uh, so I think maybe we get everybody back together again at some point just to see where this, where this takes us. How do you channel it and and what kind of concrete change begins to come out of this? Will something come out of this? Regardless of what it is, we, we need a first step um, to, to get along the uh, to get down the path. Uh, normally, at this time of the podcast, we talk about what we just heard. Jason and I do, um, but but I think that what y'all just heard is, is a hell of a lot more powerful than anything Jason and I can say. I'll leave you with this one thing, um, Jason. And I like looking at these protest signs. And the New York Times had a great uh, photo collage of all the protests across the country. And one woman, I think she was in Des Moines, Iowa, had a protest sign that said, my skin is not a weapon. And I think that is one of the most powerful signs I've seen uh, so far in this. So with that said, I'm going to leave it right there. Uh, There's nothing else that that I can say that would be uh, any more poignant than what you've heard here in the last 45 minutes. This is a longer podcast than we've done before. We had more guests, but I think I think it's important, Jason. Yeah, uh, and I just want to thank again David, Akila, Carl, Demond, all of you for coming on and expanding this discussion out. And uh, thank you for having me again. Thank you. Thank you.